Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Greater Than Code. You can find all of the details at linode.com slash greater than code. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com slash greater than code and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. Welcome to episode 216 of Greater Than Code. I'm your co-host, Rain Hendricks, and I'm here with my co-host, Damian Burke. Hi, and I'm here with our guest today, Professor Julie Shaw. Julie Shaw is an Associate Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT and Director of the Interactive Robotics Group, which aims to imagine the future of work by designing collaborative robot teammates that enhance human capability. She's expanding the use of human cognitive models for artificial intelligence and has translated her work to manufacturing assembly lines, healthcare applications, transportation, and defense. Before joining the faculty, she worked at Boeing Research and Technology on robotics applications for aerospace manufacturing. Professor Shaw has been recognized by the National Science Foundation with a Faculty Early Career Development Award and by MIT Technology Review on its 35 Innovators Under 35 list. Her work on industrial human-robot collaboration was also in Technology Review's 2013 list of 10 breakthrough technologies. She earned degrees in aeronautics and astronautics and autonomous systems from MIT. Julie, welcome very much to the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so, Julie, uh, you were warned. You were you were pre-warned about this. We asked all of our guests the same question to start the show. Uh, what is your superpower? Yes, I I don't think of myself as really having uh you know kind of superpowers. I've mostly just sort of worked really hard. <laughs> to, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> to, to do the things I've done. I'm an MIT professor, but I, you know, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but I don't, you know, think of myself as especially brilliant. I just work really hard and I'm really passionate about what I do. I do think of myself as really especially good at is I am very good at maintaining sort of focused attention on something for a very long period of time. And that got me pretty far in life. Like that got me through a PhD because mostly you just kind of sit quietly at a desk as an AI researcher and program, you know, on your own, <laughs> really, really focused. And then I became a faculty member and was uh, quickly told and taught that that job is totally different. It's a juggling job. If you look at any one of the balls too long, the whole thing falls apart. And so over the years, I have trained myself to juggle. But really at heart, I am just my superpower is just focusing on one thing for a really long period of time. Okay, so the, the second half of this question is, how did you acquire it? Do you think that was nature or nurture? I'm positive it was nature because I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and my four-year-old is exactly like that. He was just born that way. My two-year-old, a little less so. I think it's just a personality thing, yeah. how I was born, but who knows? 
I have uh, ADHD, so I am also like that about 10% of the time. <laughs> I have to say, I really love that answer. Um, what, what I heard was, I don't have a superpower. I just work really, really hard. I've read enough comic books. That's a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not one I have, so I can agree with that. So then that's super cool. So that's that's the main thing that I know about you is that you're into robots. Yes, yes, I am. And I and I I mostly feel that same way every day too. And pre-COVID going into into my robotics lab, like I was like, I can't believe this is my job. This is totally amazing. And uh I think one of the one of the outstanding things about being a professor is that like my whole job is to envision the future and then try to make progress towards realizing that future. So I'm, I work in AI. Um, I'm an AI researcher and a roboticist, but I specialize in developing like the artificial intelligence and the software. I've worked to deploy collaborative robots that work alongside people in factories to build planes and build cars um, and work on translating what we know about effective human teamwork into robots so that they can sort of jump in and work alongside people in an equally natural way. Okay, that sounds scary impressive. In my experience, robotics and in, in manufacturing, for instance, mostly collaborate with humans by following a very careful scripted set of behaviors that the humans are aware of and can work with. But it sounds like that's not what you're doing. That's exactly the opposite of what I try to do. Carefully scripting the robot has its place. You know, there are industries in which we've successfully widely deployed robots, but the automotive industry is sort of one of those industries. Most people think about, you know, in the process of building up a car, it's this long line of robots that's building up your car. Uh, but it's actually only half the build process of a car that is really done by robots. And it was that half of the build process that could be carefully scripted and is highly repeatable. Um, uh, but the final assembly of the car, like the wiring, the cabling, the insulation, it takes up half the factory footprint and half the build schedule. So about half the build process. And it's still done almost entirely manually today. There's a lot of work there that is still very, very hard for robots to do. But uh, that's only because we can't sort of cage it. Like we can't, we can't pull out the work, separate it from the human work, cage it and structure it. What I aim to do is to think about rather than replacing the human's role in doing that work, how do you develop an intelligent system to assist or augment a person in doing it? And once you sort of take a step back and say, well, our end goal is actually just building a car more efficiently, more, you know, uh, increasing the productivity then, uh, you know, another concept is to deploy a robot that's almost like a surgical assistant to the human associate doing the, the job that's still very hard for robots today. And just if the robot can just hand over the right part at the right time and save a little bit of that walking distance between the, the cart with the material and the car on the assembly line, that non-value added work um, that we don't think about is actually a very large portion of that build process. And so, uh, you know, a robot that can help a person paralyze tasks and really be like that surgical assistant can drastically improve the production of a build process. But it requires a system that, like, you can't script a robot to work with a person, as we learned over the better part of a decade, because people do things differently from person to person, but also from like day to day and shift to shift based on their personal preference, based on whether they have to hurry because that the, that part of the car got to them a little late. And so it really requires that a robot work more flexibly with people. And that's the AI I focus on is, is actually enabling those systems to more, more flexibly sort of change their robot programming or their plan in response to what's happening in front of them while working with a human. 
I'm going to ask a question that sounds very simple, and I understand that it is the bulk of your life's work. How do you create that flexibility? Yes. Okay. So. <laughs> Just summarize your dissertation in about five minutes for it. us. Okay. No, it's even worse than my dissertation because I've, uh, I've, you know, been now, you know, past the dissertation, I've been doing this for the better part of 10 years, but I, but I figured out how to summarize it briefly for you. So what I can do is summarize decades of research in human team collaboration and coordination and human team training, like everything we know about how to train pilots to work effectively with co-pilots in a cockpit or to train nurses and surgeons to work together or to train sort of military teams to work together. There's a whole science behind that, that uh, we've been working to be able to translate, to develop computational models for robots that can learn with people and be equally good teammates. I'm going to have to retire this joke now, but I'm going to do it like maybe one or two more times, then I'll retire it. But I can summarize all of that work, uh, those decades of research with, uh, usually in my talk, I of Tom Brady. And I say, he is an example of an outstanding team leader because I'm, because I'm in Boston. So there you go. So it'll have to be retired soon, but it's okay. You know, they say he sees and he knows, and, and that's what you need to know about what makes an effective human partner. You need to know what your partner is thinking. You need to anticipate what they'll do next. And then you need to be able to make fast changes in response to disruptions that occur. And so the AI that, you know, we work on developing for robots is able to do exactly that to like infer human mental state, to be able to develop predictive models of how people will behave and what they'll do and the timing of those actions, and then take that into uh, techniques for dynamic tasking and scheduling. So the robot can very quickly resequence its work, cho choose different motions or do different parts of tasks based on what's actually occurring online. So I'm, I'm not explaining this julie this is more for our listeners but this combines decades of research in a huge number of fields like cognitive systems engineering human and machine cognition joint cognitive systems human factors and ergonomics you know just a whole bunch of stuff has to be synthesized to make this work yes exactly you got it yes it's a, it's a number of different fields that require you know that are sort of inputs to developing systems that are capable in this way and we're only at the beginning of the sort of you know team science of human and machines working together one thing that we uh, my my co-author Laura Major and I sort of raise in the book is that uh, to get this right it's not just about making a system that's like that's more intelligent that's that's more capable or more human like it requires systems and processes to like change what we know about robots, what we think about them, how we're going to learn over time to interact and collaborate with them. And what we're aiming to do is translate those insights, those sort of like uh, hard earned lessons from aviation, from designing the partnership between a pilot and uh, an autopilot, uh, or from the industrial sector where I've worked in collaborative robots, and, and figuring out how we can take those insights and, and make robots like in our homes, on our streets, on our sidewalks, in our workplaces, you know, more capable and, and be able to provide value for us. Wow. So one of the things you said that this that this requires, this is incredibly impressive work, is a mental model of the of the humans you're working with. At that point, it sounds like you've solved artificial general intelligence. Well, yeah. So, um, okay. So... <laughs> I have not solved artificial general intelligence, just as a spoiler alert. <laughs> In contrast, rather than thinking about these systems as sort of like artificial, you know, human intelligence, sort of a key um, unlocking point for me was to, you know, um, something we've thought deeply about over the years is, well, what are the you know, natural strengths of humans versus machines or humans versus AI? 
And um, it was recently pointed out to me, although I never actually, you know, made the connection, you know, the Turing test, sort of the original sort of test, like, how do you know if something is really artificially intelligent? Do you want it to sort of like pass for a human? You know, my lab has used a, or, or sort of thought about variants of that type of Turing test in a team setting. So in sort of computer environments, we've paired virtual agents with humans to play games or to compete. And then we, you know, ask the human, were you playing a human or were you playing an AI? And really what you want is for them not to know, right? Like you want to be sort of like random chance that they get that right. But the very conception of that Turing test is like you're aiming to replace the human's role, right? You're aiming to look at what a human is doing, pull a human out and put an agent in. In many ways, that's missing the point of the sort of the complementarity between humans and AI or humans and intelligent robots. The way, the way I think about it is unique human capability is our ability to take an unstructured problem and structure it. Machines can't do that. That's our unique human ability. Uh, once we've structured and defined a problem, AI or a machine can crush it. The question we, you know, we have to ask is, well, what are all the ways we're structuring the world for AI now or for intelligent robots now? Um, and if we're not structuring the world for them or we're doing it in ways that are sort of implicit, uh, well, then let's open up that design space and let's think about, okay, well, how do we structure the world for these machines so that they don't just sort of do the things that are you know, easy for them, but that are actually valuable for us? And so the, oftentimes the way you train machine learning you know, today is through labeled data. And that's how we structure you know, a machine's knowledge of the problem in, in the world is through us painstakingly labeling data for it. That is a very poor way of translating our unique human insight <laughs> on how to structure an unstructured problem. And so what are the ways we can expand that and create the sort of richer communication between human and machine? I, I, I'm sorry. I have very strong opinions about AI, and I, I, I really, really love this. I'm really, I'm really glad I got to be here for this. One of the things I like to tell people is the reason we don't have machines that think like humans is because we don't want them. <laughs> Do you know how humans think? You don't want your computers to do that. And occasionally, sometimes on accident, we get that anyway, and, and nobody likes that. And then the other, the other story I like to tell is, is the best chess players in the world are not people. The best chess players in the world are not machines. They're people-machine collaborations. Exactly. And so I, it, it makes my heart expand two sizes <laughs> to know that, that, that this, is, uh, this is the work you're doing. So thank you. <laughs> no, that, that's exactly right. Like that key that the two together can achieve more than either can individually. Building off of, you know, that comment, like so in, in my lab, we've seen that over and over again, especially in intelligent decision support. There are many tasks that we can't really, you know, encode for a machine to solve on the time scale that say like a military operator or a nurse or doctor would need it sort of solve and say running a, a hospital unit. It's really actually very few of us as humans that can do it that well. So, for example, we had a project in a local Boston hospital where we were developing a system to support uh, the, the resource nurse, sort of the, the nurse supervisor that sort of runs the labor and delivery floor. When we look deeply at the task they were doing, the job they were doing, it's actually that of an air traffic controller. It's actually computationally more complex than that of an air traffic controller. And they do it without any decision support. And there's no structured training process. There's no manual or rule book. There's even no like objective they're given. Like here's what here's what we want to achieve on this labor floor in terms of utilization of beds or other measures. Um, and some people are naturally very gifted at solving those types of air traffic controller problems. And some people are not. But if we use machine learning to reverse engineer 
the rules or heuristics that people use, these high performers use, and we give that to a machine to sort of seed an optimization process, the machine can find a solution, the computer can find a solution very quickly that's even better than the solution a human expert would find. And so this is just another example of, you know, from chess where uh, you were saying, you know, together, you know, if we, if we intelligently leverage our relative strengths, we can achieve a lot more. And in fact, if that's your end goal, you might actually want to design uh, an AI system or a predictive system or an automated system that's actually not perfect. So in sort of a safety critical context, say like a TSA agent looking for a threat in your luggage or a doctor looking for cancer on a scan, if the system is too good, right? And if say 90% of the time it's giving the person the right answer, well, why do you have the person in there? The person's in there to catch the 10% of cases that the machine is going to miss. But there's sort of these natural human biases <laughs> that we bring. Like we are, we are not perfect. We are not necessarily the thing that you exactly want to emulate, Damon. Just as you, just as you were saying, uh, and and so you know, one of these biases sort of comes up in that uh, you know a human will over rely or over trust the recommender system, the system that's recommending is there a threat here, is there cancer here or not? And in some controlled studies, not exactly in those applications, but in some controlled studies, researchers have shown that. There's a sweet spot. Like you actually want the system to be something like 70% accurate at its prediction because it kind of keeps the person in and the person is better able to catch the situations that the machine fails at such that the human machine team overall performs better than either the human would have on their own or, you know, the AI would have on their own. And so like by sub-optimizing the AI, you can better optimize the human AI team. Isn't that interesting? No, that, yeah, that is there's brilliant. so much going on here. One of the, the last thing that you just said is fascinating to me, which is that you, by the AI, you can make the system better. So Russell Acoff has a saying, which is you can't make a system better by improving each part separately. And in fact, sometimes you have to make specific parts worse to make the system better. Exactly. Yes. And so in, in that long bio you read for me, so now I'm going to make you include the sentence of it, <laughs> but in that long bio you read for me, um, uh, I'm faculty in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT. I moved into computer science and AI for my PhD, but my undergrad, I studied aerospace engineering, uh, and that's still my home department. And one of the things we teach our undergrads in aerospace engineering is exactly that. So yeah, you can optimize each individual component of the system, but end up with a highly suboptimized overall system. And we illustrate that to them in the context of uh, like these capstone courses where they have to design a satellite or a Mars rover. And then there's teams that break out like this one does avionics, this one does the materials and structures, this one, you know, uh, does the thermal and each team on their own optimizes their own subsystem and then they put it together and it's a disaster have to sort of work through, you know, it's an interconnected system and says, you choose something that's going to work, you need to make these trade-offs. AI on its own is not the goal. It's an, it's, we, we want it to be, you know, intelligent robots on their own are not the goal. We want them to be embedded in society and in, in, in helping us in the way we do work. And so that requires different sort of engineering and design considerations. Can I ask a favor? Can you go to Tesla and explain this to them? Because these people who are building level four self-driving uh, systems are going to kill a lot of people just because, you know, again, you get, they're going to build, they're, they're heading towards exactly what you describe a system that works very well, almost all the time. Yeah. And, and one of the key differences between 
the Tesla or a car on our roads and an airplane actually. Okay, there's a few key differences and it's just gonna, it's gonna horrify us all even more. Um, you know, a pilot is trained not just to, uh, how to fly the airplane, but on the automation in that airplane for thousands and thousands and thousands of hours, highly trained, right? And driving, you know, where we get a license to drive the car, but we're not trained on these new automation systems that are de being deployed and certainly not at that level. And in an airplane, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of feet to troubleshoot your problem, like a long time, like minutes to troubleshoot your problem. When something isn't going right, the pilot is actually taught to like slow down, slow down, take your time, understand the full state of what's happening, um, and then to be able to take the right action. Whereas uh, in a car, we're putting the person in as a safety net with automation that is that will definitely fail because it's not trained, it's not validated on every possible scenario that we're going to see on our roads. And then we're asking in, in a split second for a person to be able to jump in and be that safety net. Uh, meanwhile, there's good studies that it actually takes a person seven or eight seconds to be able to safely transfer that sort of control authority from your vehicle to and to build up your own mental model to be able to take over and take the right action. But we would never be given seven or eight seconds on a road in, in most of these circumstances. There's a lot here where we're sort of setting ourselves up for failure in a way. A lot of the lessons that resulted in plane crashes over decades around uh, around sort of weaknesses in, in humans' understanding or human situational awareness of the aircraft or in mode confusion, not understanding what mode it's in and then taking the wrong action in response to that, we're seeing in, in these new uh, vehicles uh, on our road. Uh, and there's a sort of seminal researcher that did the research on on sort of pilot situational awareness and the and the sort of root you know issues that result in many plane crashes where a pilot kind of doesn't know what mode the system is in and takes the wrong action. And she um, just a, maybe two years ago she published uh, this beautiful journal paper where she she bought a Tesla. And she said, you know, the software updates on this Tesla kind of regularly, whereas an aircraft, it doesn't, right? Every time the software updates, there's huge training around it. But her car is updating software, like, relatively regularly. And she self-documented issues of mode confusion in her own car uh, over the course of a six-month period. And it was about a dozen or so, you know, incidents. It points to the issues that are sort of key threats to safety in aviation are cropping up again in, in these vehicles. And there's things we can translate, but there's things that are working quite against us in terms of time scale, in terms of training of people on the automation itself. Who's going to sit in their garage and undergo 30 minutes of training after each software update before they go to work? Nobody would stand for that. So it's something that we need to build into the design of these systems, um, you know, these sort of human, human sort of failings or weaknesses. We're good at other things, though. You mentioned um, mode confusion. So this is also called mode error. For our listeners, the original sort of exploration of this was there was a plane that had two levers next to each other. And one lever controlled the flaps and the other level controlled the landing gear. And those levers were the same piece of hardware. They looked the same. And can you imagine how these planes were crashing? Yeah. and That's and how they were crashing. Highly skilled, but under duress, under stress, people revert back to their previous mental models. And I think there's also an example of, uh, as, the, as the model of airplane sort of shifted, there was sort of a change in where those levers were and pilots sort of reverted back to their sort of prior training in the previous aircraft. Yeah. This also gets back to what we were talking about earlier, which is there's been a paradigm shift in, in originally how we thought about automation and now, now in your work. And this actually like started happening decades ago. 
So the old view from like the forties is that you make the machines do the things that machines are good at. And you make the humans do the things that humans are good at. And so machines are there to replace humans and stuff that humans are bad at. But the newer view is typified by a paper, uh, which was um, 10 challenges and making automation a team player, which is how do you make machines a team player in a joint activity? And you do that by figuring out how machines are constrained. You know, they're good at understanding things that are within their ontology, but not good at understanding like the larger context. So you get people to point them at the stuff they should be looking at. Right. And then you figure out what humans are good at, but where they need help, you know, so they're good at understanding context, but they make machines to inform them of new events. Exactly. So that that's the kind of paradigm shift. Exactly. That, that's exactly right. Yes. And I think what's interesting is it, it reframes the AI problem. If we are narrowly defining the AI tasks, you know, the tasks for AI, it requires sort of a different problem framing to be able to design AI for that, that type of use case. Um, and so it's not just a human interface problem is the thing. On the other hand, it isn't just an AI problem either. There's a lot we can draw from our prior expertise in human, our prior knowledge in human systems integration. That's really not that different. So, uh, you know, when we introduced a radar in World War II to be able to detect submarines, uh, and there were sort of differences in how you want to tune that radar based on your your end goal or who the operator was, uh, you know, there's high consequence if you think there's a submarine there when there isn't, but there's high consequence is a submarine there and you don't see it turns out you want to tune that sort of threshold based on you know the operator's skill or expertise or even like their fatigue level and that sort of spawned this sort of this, uh, area in psychology signal detection theory that now influences how we design you know threat detectors or um, uh, for TSA agents um, all of that still applies just because it's fancy AI <laughs> doesn't mean that um you know that that doesn't apply anymore and so yeah you're you're exactly right i think getting this right is the is sort of like our key our key challenge right now um but it's also the the really big opportunity are there things about robots specifically that present new challenges com- compared to like the work on automation in in the like the 90s and yeah yeah how do so, those differences play out yeah so there are ways that it's different one of the things that's more challenging as we look to bring sort of the, the newer deep learning techniques into work products, into applications, but also into intelligent robots is it's no longer easy to understand, you know, how or why the output is is the way it is. Like these models are kind of inherently uninterpretable. Uh, whereas before, um, you know, if we have a closed loop control system, that's something that we can sort of characterize very, very well mathematically. If we have a rule-based system, that's something that is deterministic and that that makes it amenable to analysis. Um, you can open up the box if you need to sort of a thing. Exactly, exactly. What are the issues with that that might be similar or different? So one is when we're using these systems, we're relying on them. If they're providing us a recommendation or an output or a prediction that then we're using in some downstream process, then uh, like a key task for us is to be able to calibrate when we should rely on that output and when we shouldn't. Without sort of an interpretable model or a model in that machine learning system that corresponds to our human mental model, we're undermining our ability to do that. So as like as a concrete example, 
if you have, um, this is an experiment we conducted in the lab, but uh, you have sort of someone controlling, directly controlling a UAV and scanning a video feed for sort of threats or concerns in the environment. Uh, if the system in, in two or three experiences makes a mistake in alerting you to some threat or obstacle in the environment, and it's sort of dark in that image, you as a person will say like, ah, oh, like, okay, the system makes mistakes when it's dark, because I make mistakes in it when it's dark, and I can understand why the system would be failing. And then, but meanwhile, that system is using an entirely different sensor suite than we have as people, right? Very possibly. And the underlying model <laughs> is inherently uninterpretable. It's like, you don't really know what feature, what combination of features resulted in it to succeed or to fail. And the problem is that we, we as humans will very naturally, very quickly build some mental model for the, ex the explanation of the behavior of a system. So in the absence of being told being trained on how the system is going to behave in different envelopes or different regimes, we will build that mental model. But it undermines our ability to know when to rely on it or when to not rely on it in a new context. And so this problem of, um, of supporting the person in building sort of calibrated trust in the system becomes much, much harder. And so that's, uh, you know, sort of in, in terms of human systems integration view, that's something that's fundamentally different. So it sounds like one possible solution to that is to build computers that model things the way people do, uh, but we already established that that's also a problem. Yeah, well, so in, in terms of a, a generalized approach to modeling things the way people do, <laughs> I mean, I'll never say never, you know, I don't know. But I agree with you, like that that really probably should not be our goal for many applications or in many settings. However, that's not to say like the, you know, our machines are fundamentally different from us. But that's not to say that there isn't a place for changing the structure of the machine learning model so that it better corresponds to our human mental model. So I'll give you I'll give you another example from very recent work from my lab. So I'm originally from New Jersey. So, so in New York, the subways run uptown and downtown. And the behavior of that subway is to go to the end of the line, turn around, come back, go to the end of the line, turn around, come back. But in Boston, the subways run inbound and outbound. That's what that's how how we named its you know movement from some arbitrary central point, Park Street. So if you're going from towards Park Street from any external end, you're going inbound. And then once you cross Park Street, you're going outbound. But based on like my external observation of the two subways, like they, the what I see is exactly the same behavior. But the model I hold in Boston is different than in New York. Corresponding those models could be important for like, generalizing the behavior of the system, or in this case, just communication, being able to communicate like the state of the subway to someone else in that community. But what I could do is, so this is what we did in the lab. We, instead of taking an unsupervised approach to trying to learn the behavior or sort of the state switching of, say, the subway or some uh, model of more complex human, if I just tell you when that state changes and I say the change point is at the end of the line or the change point is at Park Street. I don't have to give you any names for the behavior of the system, but I've provided a way to incorporate sort of structure about the knowledge of the world that I hold as a human that can allow the system to learn a structured model of the world that now corresponds to my model of the world. So we're still sort of leveraging this sort of like, you know, semi-supervised approach. We don't want to hand label absolutely everything because that's super hard for us to do. Uh, but we don't want it to just learn some random explanation for the behavior it's seeing because actually like there's physics in the world or there's some mental model we hold as humans that's useful for communication. Like we actually have preferences over the structure of the model that it's learning. How do we give it just the right foothold 
to sort of sync those models, to align those models to our human mental models without this very laborious process of labeling data. Like we don't need generalized intelligence. What we need is the ability to just strategically open these lines of communication between a human and machine so that the system can kind of lock into models that are useful for us for specific tasks at specific times. Um, so the person in New York or the person in Boston could use the same AI model, but sort of sync it to their own mental model in a way that's useful for them as they need. Let me see if I understand the challenge with that model. The the model, in the model, there's a discontinuity. At one point, there, there's a vector pointing this way, and at some point it flips signs to point this way. But the underlying reality, the actual subway car, just keeps moving continuously in the same direction. Yes. Is that yeah, sort yeah. of... Yeah, so like the the mental model I hold of the behavior of the subway is not linked to its velocity vector, sort of, right? That's what that's what you're saying. Like the the way I talk about where the way the subway is yeah. going, so like, like in city it's linked, but in another one it's not. Yeah. Like at the yeah, like at the point where it stops being inbound and starts being outbound, that's a discontinuity in the model. But actually the thing just kept moving in one direction. Exactly. That's right. Yep. Yep which I found moving from New Jersey to Boston many years ago, very confusing. <laughs> yeah, so, so we, don't, we don't need artificial general intelligence. We just need the, a way for the system to like follow our breadcrumbs and mm -hmm. be able to learn in a way that's useful for us in some particular context for some particular kind of task. That's sort of my view. And we can accomplish a lot with that without waiting for or being concerned about uh, sort of generalized intelligence. Okay, I got it. I th so I think what the, the the team paper says about this is 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 important because the challenge that's relevant here is adequate model. Yes. Yes. Not perfect models of humans. Adequate models, models that are suitable for the task. That's exactly right. Yep. Absolutely. I kind of want to switch change directions here because there's a topic you suggested that I'm that I fear we're not going to get to, and I really want to get to it. Can you talk a little about the interaction of robots and humans in public spaces? Yeah. So this problem is fascinating to me because it brings almost everything we've discussed so far kind of together. I think, you know, the um, autonomous vehicles on our roads, it's just the first example of the type of robot that's going to be, you know, all around us, like on our sidewalks, in our office places, so sort of security guard robots, the news stop and shop uh, grocery store robots that are going, look, going down up and down aisles looking for spills. These systems are equally dangerous as autonomous vehicles, just to sort of motivate like why, why this sort of like, you know, pedestrian type robot is so important for us to think about and, and get right. A few years ago, there were headlines. I don't know if you remember, these always end up being kind of funny headlines, but they're not really funny. Um, a security guard robot in a Palo Alto shopping mall ran into, collided with a toddler uh, and that's like a 300 or 400 pound robot like that. That can kill a toddler. And that's equally tragic as a car killing a pedestrian at an intersection. And so wh why did it run into the toddler? The toddler did not like as most kids do. They do not conform to the you know human model you would build if you're looking at adults. Like the toddler, instead of, you know, moving out of the security guard robot's way as it was approaching, as the security guard robot would would had expected, the toddler went towards it and then went towards it faster because the toddler was like excited to see the robot and wanted to, you know, get up close to it, not really thinking that it would pose a safety hazard. 
And so this idea of, you know, who's interacting with these systems and what training do they have, it's made much worse by these robots on our sidewalks and on our streets, because now it's not even a person driving a Tesla that has like opted in to drive the Tesla. It's sort of bystanders who are really just trying to go about their their business and their work uh, and now are acting with these robot systems. And they hold a mental model of the robot, right? That toddler held a mental model of the robot that it's like a friendly robot from TV and it could go and say, hi, who knows what that toddler thought. But actually the mental model that toddler should have had is that is a very dangerous robot and it's unpredictable (laughs) around you and you should give it space. Challenge three, predictability. Human agent team members must be mutually predictable. Must be mutually predictive, yes. And directability is equally important. So being able to direct the behavior of the robot. And so we need bystanders to also be able to direct the behavior of the robot, not just a supervisor or an operator remotely overseeing it. Uh, a parent should be able to wave off that robot, right, as their toddler is going to it. Challenge so, four. That's challenge four. That's challenge four. <laughs> and to be able to do that without any sort of training or previous knowledge about the robot. Yes, yes. And it becomes pretty nightmarish because you know, each of these startups, each of these you know, big companies, there, there are a number of different manufacturers of these robots. Uh, and so while there's an AI challenge to make the system more capable of distinguishing toddlers from a person or me pushing a double stroller from someone else riding a bike, it's equally important we think about the other ways we structure our world for these robots uh, for safety reasons and just to make them more capable for us. Let's see. So, for example, like in when we rent cars, like we there's standardization for, you know, the controls for driving a car. Like we rely on that to be able to rent a car at some new place and be able to just drive it without any training or looking at a manual. But with different manufacturers in an uncoordinated way, you're going to have different beeps. You're going to have different signals. You're going to have different ways that the robot communicates with people from manufacturer to manufacturer, a robot from this sidewalk uh, or this block to that block. And it's really untenable for people to learn the ways that they, bystanders, to learn the ways that they can safely direct the robot when they need to, if the inputs to each of these robots is different. So so standardization is, you know, another tool in our toolkit here to make these systems safe and easily integrate them. It's not fancy AI, but uh, I think an argument can be made. It's arguably even even more important. So these agents need to present signals about their status and intentions and humans need to be able to interpret those signals to understand what the, the agent is trying to accomplish and what they might what it might do next. Exactly. So we've kind of had this problem before, right? We have trains. And so they're on rails, so you know where they're gonna go. And they have big then they have crossing guard. And you mentioned subways earlier. Subway's another thing, like like I live in LA now. Uh, and when you go out to Boston, you go out to New York, people haven't seen subways before. They're like, what is this? But they know not to step off the ledge, I guess, because there's a ledge there. <laughs> and then there's yellow paint in the front, and there's signs. And so these are, we, we, we've dealt with these issues with all sorts of industrialization and dangerous tools. And it seems like infrastructure might be another tool we have uh, when dealing with robots in public society. That's exactly right. It is, it is another tool. It's a key one, in my view. These systems are not going to be capable without us uh, investing in infrastructure for them to understand us in the world. But um, sort of in addition to that, there's also this question of like how we want them to exist in our world. 
So for example, like what is, what is the mental model we want to hold of these robots? So are they like bikes and do they exist in bike lanes going down our street? Because then suddenly I kind of know how a bike is supposed to behave. And if these systems are behaving like bikes, like that could work okay. Or are they sidewalk robots and are they really more like pedestrians? And that's sort of, you know, the model we're going to hold of them. And then they should behave differently than bikes, right? But then we can sort of build a model. Okay, this is how a pedestrian would navigate around me. This is, this is what it would do. Or is this something where, you know, just like we um, we eventually installed sort of bike lanes in many cities for safety of, you know, people who are riding bikes, are they or are they going to need to be something fundamentally different and need their own lanes? Or are they going to be more like cars? I mean, infrastructure is, is, a, is a key aspect to making them usable, but there are also these, these larger questions of what is the right way to integrate them into society even? And that flows back to have implications for the technology design as well. That's such a, a great example. Like if, if you put a mobile robot in a pedestrian space, we're going to expect it to behave like a pedestrian. We're going to expect it to move at pedestrian paces, to yield or not yield the way pedestrians do. So just, just putting it in that space does that. But then there are also technical questions. I, I don't know a lot about the mechanics of robotics. but So how do we answer this question? How do we want our robots to interact with us in society? Yeah, it's, it's all trade-offs. It's just like the designing the, spa, you know, the space satellite example. If the robot is going to be a pedestrian robot, well, then, then it can move a lot more slowly. Uh, and so it, ha- you know, um, and, uh, it can stop in a shorter time frame. But uh, there may be sort of more variability. I mean, sidewalks weren't designed for wheels. <laughs> there may be, um, you know, more sort of less predictable entities on the sidewalk with a robot that has to be contended with. Whereas, um, you know, a, a bicycle lane, you may have a more limited set of types of interactions it would have at various intersections or going down the streets to work with, but it's it's moving faster. So it has, you know, a difference of sort of stopping uh, distance. Um, it has different signals it would have to attend to, to know when to slow and stop. The design problem is like deeply interwoven with like the question of how we want to think of these systems and what's going to be better for us in terms of how they're integrated. And it may be different from like neighborhood to neighborhood or city to city. Um, and I think in the book, like Laura and I, we originally uh, set out to write this book as a textbook, actually, for like roboticists and for AI researchers. That was our that was our goal. We spent a while, you know, working it through like that. And then, um, you know, came came to the sort of view or understanding that, you know, so many of these design issues are so interwoven with these larger societal considerations that we need to uh, work with that it's actually really important for everybody to understand that like these are the questions we need to be asking that need to flow back like we shouldn't just wait for the tech companies to like stick a robot on our sidewalk like that's going to end well for nobody you know that yeah. we need to be a part of the discussion right at the beginning about what we want of these systems and how we conceive of them integrating effectively and so yeah we wrote we wrote sort of uh we aimed to write a more widely sort of accessible type of book yeah, that just brings to mind all all the like. I've I've long thought about my pizza delivery robot. Like, it's why not have a pizza delivery robot? Well, a pedestrian robot couldn't get me my pizza fast enough, and a car robot couldn't get to my door. Yes. So, <laughs> exactly. Do I need two robots to deliver my pizza? More? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a part of the design space too. You know, um, maybe you you prefer not to have robots sort of gumming up your your sidewalks, but then you need a different solution, right, to get that sort of you know, do those last steps and actually get it to your door. 
Um, well, people beating the shit out of robots with a baseball bat is an externality. That's not something that we need to include in our model. <laughs> I wonder if there are any examples of road rage against autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People are beating the shit out of robots with baseball bats. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There's also a great theory that because uh, autonomous cars are very safety conscious, that human drivers will learn this and will bully them. Like, yeah. you, you don't get to merge because you're not going to hit me. Yes, 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 yes. So I very unfortunately have not yet had the opportunity to drive a Tesla. But uh, what I understand is there is this sort of this knob you can tune on sort of like the aggressiveness of the Tesla exactly for this. And in like you as the driver tune it and you and you need you kind of need to set it differently depending on where in the country you're living or maybe based on your own personal preference. Yeah. Yes. What is the aggression threshold that will allow you to merge in yeah. New York versus San Francisco? <laughs> oh, there's definitely a PhD in that topic. There's definitely- I mean, the game. The implications are absolutely fascinating, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. so much fun. I'm and then, so and then, and then there's sort of like, yeah. Then there's larger considerations too, like how does that maybe you know, or privacy considerations. How does that information then flow back and get used for your insurance premiums? Mm-hmm. It's also entirely possible to to go back to what what I was saying before that making the the world's best automated car won't make society better. That improving that particular part isn't going to be the thing that makes society better. It might even make society worse. Yes. Yeah. I mean, def- definitely for, for any technology you're developing that can have sort of wide, wide reaching societal implications, like it could, you know, uh, s- small decisions along the way, both technical, but also like social or sort of policy decisions could result in kind of very different futures. If there's a world in which it's safe and very, very inexpensive to be transported in an autonomous vehicle from from one point to another, like what about our societal investment in other mass forms of transit, like subways? And so, does it does it completely sort of re- replace that? Uh, and over what time scale, right? And yeah, I mean, we like Laura and I started writing this book, obviously, like a long time before a pandemic. <laughs> you know, I think even a year ago, we we didn't, you know, even these, these issues, I think, are imperative and are very urgent for us to be talking about and considering right now. Uh, I don't I don't think we considered that, you know, on a day to day basis, there would be an imperative, like a safety imperative to be able to sort of like address you know, risk and harms for essential workers, right? But, you know, there, I guess there's no reason to say, like, what if, if we had done things differently or invested differently, but let's do it differently for the next pandemic. Like, let's make these technologies that are actually useful to us, you know, in our workplaces and in society to be able to address, you know, something like this that happens the next time around. Yes. <laughs> let's do that. Let's do yes. that. <laughs> but you know, there's uh, there's, uh, you know, there's implications for future of work too, right? Again, back to not just wanting to replace people, but being thoughtful about the implications of of deploying any new technology. And there needs to be sort of a larger discussion and investment in, you know, the long term. I guess my understanding is I've I've been embedded in MIT's work of the future task force for the last two or three years, which is this amazing effort, like with economists and social scientists and roboticists and AI researchers. Um, trying to, you know, understand uh, what what's coming and how we shape technologies and how we shape a future, you know, the future that we want to see. 
you know, we, we have a lot of opportunity to shape it. But in, in, in my understanding, my crude understanding is that in the long term, everything is going to be okay. You know, <laughs> like, in the long term, technology creates new jobs. But like, you, what about like the short and medium term, and there needs to be an active effort to make sure that, you know, people have livelihoods and are, you know, can, and, and that we sort of make it through a time of disruption. And so, yeah, that's an equal part of the conversation. I think Frederick Hayek said, uh, "In the long term, we're in the long run, we're all dead." <laughs> exactly. Yes. <I'm, laughs> one way or another, we know what'll happen in the long term. So, <laughs> there's a, a particular facet to this that we kind of touched on earlier that I'd like to dig into a little bit more, if we could. I'd like to go back to the uh, the example, the case of like the intersection with the bikes and the pedestrians and the cars. And talk about joint activity. There's an old, the sort of classical model of communication, the Shannon model, Claude Shannon, is I say a thing, you interpret that thing, you say a thing, I interpret that thing. So there's sort of sequential blocking communication. But intersections are not like that. Everyone isn't waiting for everyone else to make a move. They're all moving at the same time. And so joint activities are activities where you know, every agent is constantly acting and interacting and perceiving and doing, and it's a categorically different kind of system than the ones that we've just like engineers have historically tried to build. Absolutely. So yep. the, the I- prompt that I'm, that I'm trying to get at here is how does that impact your work? You know, I, you can't just build like client server systems where you, your machine blocks waiting for other machines to act, you know, or humans to act. Yes, that's definitely true. I mean, if you, in analyzing, you know, one of these systems, sort of like in a multi-agent setting, like you'd ask all sorts of questions like stability, like <laughs> do people or entities like get to where they need to get in, in some amount of time um, and, and so on. And so in robotics, like the, the thing that's really interesting to me about robotics or intelligent robotics is that systems are continuously uh, taking in information, processing, making decisions and acting and there's concurrency to it. That clearly introduces you know, an, another level uh, of complexity. And uh, actually one of the classes I teach at MIT is real-time systems and software. And so, you know, building systems, uh, concurrent systems and concurrent, you know, concurrent programming techniques uh, and approaches um, and, and modes of analysis. And so, but, on, you know, on the other hand, that is the way the entire world functions, right? Like, like we, we want to design concurrent systems because it mirrors like the concurrency in our real life. And so, you know, there are challenges, but they're, they're not insurmountable. And, and the thing is, you know, we don't need guarantees necessarily. Like <laughs> we have many, many ways to get around sort of deadlock at an intersection. It's not something like we worry yeah. about practically with people, but with agents and with cars, like it is something you worry about kind of practically. Uh, and so there was this uh, really interesting story, or at least I found it interesting and, and it kind of stuck with me when autonomous vehicles were sort of first being rolled out and tested. And uh, I, I guess there's, yeah, there's no reason to like name a particular company <laughs> whose car it was, but it's sort of, you know, kind of like, uh, let's just assume that they're all bad. Just assume that, yeah. A natural thing to do is to have the autonomous vehicle defer to a human at an intersection. Like that seems like a very reasonable rule to put in place. And, you know, cause a person will kind of sit there for some amount of time, like wait to see what the car is doing and then get impatient and then eventually go. And like, you've broken deadlock, right? 
But then, you know, who'd have thought, you know, these systems are, are being tested on these roads. Two of those cars came to an intersection at the same time. And rather than sort of the rules of the road where you defer to someone on the right, the rule was to defer to the other. And then they, uh, there was deadlock. The two cars just sat there waiting for the other one to go. Um, and so that's clearly an issue. Uh, and so, you know, the, that, was, that was eventually addressed. Uh, but those were two cars even from the same manufacturer. So now you have different cars across different manufacturers and some, uh, some explicit communication and coordination among them and explicitly between people and these entities is absolutely necessary and it needs to be like designed it should not be it should not be an emergent system that will not work very well for us either at some point you should probably tell us about your book <laughs> sure yes that's not in the bio you should add that to the bio too make it a little bit longer i, guess I should add that to the bio make it a little longer why not <laughs> The, the book uh, touches on sort of many of these questions and, and themes. While in my lab, I'm working to make AI more capable of modeling and collaborating with people. And it, we are sort of very focused on making systems like intelligent enough to be effective teammates with people. There's only half or maybe even, even a smaller uh, sort of part of the equation or the considerations that are necessary for uh, moving systems from industrial environments onto our, our streets and roads and workplaces. And so the book um, is both a look back at decades of research in these other industries to ask the question, like, what translates? Like issues of mode confusion, like that translates. What doesn't translate? For example, designing safety critical systems uh, that require operators to have thousands of hours of training, like that doesn't translate. So the things that we relied on there to make those systems work will not translate in these new contexts. And thinking about the sort of wider design space we have uh, in terms of, of, of designing our infrastructure, outfitting our environment, uh, and then thinking more at um, sort of a structural level too, what's necessary to make these systems safe. And again, there is a lot that we can translate from aviation and other fields uh, in terms of uh, sharing of information between companies uh, and through public-private partnerships that can ensure, say, a, a security guard robot at a Palo Alto mall that runs into a toddler is not a situation that occurs again on the East Coast. It's meant to uh, provoke some questions, not just for sort of engineers or technologists, but but for us sort of more broadly as sort of stakeholders in society. You know, systems deployed at scale, they're going to have wide-ranging impacts on all of us. So, you know, around an airport, whenever you go to change the flight pattern, there's community input on that because uh, the noise associated with that can impact property values. What is the equivalent here? Well, where are these systems tested? Where where are they sort of refined? Um, but then how are they deployed in, in practice? Which which neighborhoods did they go through or blanket to you know succeed in your sort of next day delivery target? And which neighborhoods do they avoid? Uh, what times of day do they come through? What you know um, these are these are questions that like at a neighborhood and at a sort of a municipal or city level we need to be kind of involved in in uh, designing the solutions and it needs to be tailored for each individual community. So your book, which is What to Expect When You're Expecting Robots, The Future of Robot Collaboration, which is available in every place that sells books, I assume. It looks really interesting. I'm going to pick it up. Uh, I'm really fascinated by this topic, but most of my reading in this area is at least a decade old. So aside from your book, which people should read, what are the most interesting or influential newer works on human-machine collaboration? Oh, great question. 
on a slightly different tack, I might recommend to people a book called Girl Decoded. Yeah, so this is this is a book by an author also uh, via via MIT, just as an FYI. But thinking about maybe some different aspects than we than Laura Major and I cover in our book, Rana, the author of that book, is sort of a leader in developing uh, technology that can can infer or sort of assess kind of human emotion. So there's a company called Affectiva, and the ways that sort of emotional intelligence is an is an equally um, sort of important aspect to sort of our overall intelligence and how sort of technology is sort of evolving and, and can sort of change. I don't know, like our future with technology <laughs> via these new systems that are incorporated to you know like look at our facial expressions, our language, our affect more generally. Um, and so I would I would strongly recommend those to pick up our book. Also, uh, check out um, you know Girl Decoded is another really excellent thought provoking book kind of in this space. I, I have one more question along these lines, and this one's really just an entirely selfish question for my own interest. What is your your favorite your favorite like most seminal paper in in your field? So I would say that the paper that sent me down this path I read when I was a a master's student at MIT. So uh, my my background in undergrad was in aerospace engineering, and I did a master's in human factors engineering. Uh, and it was only sort of after there that I I switched gears and did my PhD in, in artificial intelligence. And much of my work is sort of bridging those two fields and thinking uh, about what we draw from human factors to be able to design intelligent systems that collaborate more effectively with people. And a work that came out just around that time that was really seminal for me was a work by Andrea Tomas and related work uh, by Guy Hoffman, who were uh, both graduate students at the Media Lab and now are faculty respectively at, at UT Austin and Cornell um, and, are, and are leaders in this field. So just go check out everything that they've written and published. But there, there was this one paper in which Andrea, I believe, was looking at reinforcement learning techniques back then. So this is like circa 2006 or so. Looking at reinforcement learning techniques, like the way you train a machine learning, one of the ways you train it is by giving it sort of a signal back about how it's doing at some task via positive or negative reward. So similar to how you kind of train kind of like a dog, if it does something right, you say, good dog and give it a treat. Or if it or if it does something bad, maybe you give it no feedback or you give it negative feedback. You know, those reinforcement learning techniques were not developed. The models for them were really not developed considering what type of signal is easy or hard for a person to give to the reinforcement learning model. So there was a sort of a, a now kind of seminal study in my view then that found that actually people were quite bad at giving the reinforcement signal that the model like mathematically assumed it was getting. So when people give like positive or negative feedback, even like in, in this case, imagine like training a dog or, you know, in this case, training like an AI agent to do something. The system is asking for feedback on the action it just took. The action I just took, was that good or was that bad towards making progress towards achieving my goal? But when a person gives feedback, they're thinking about all sorts of other things. They're thinking about what the agent had done in the past or what what they predict the agent might do in the future and sort of uh, prospectively giving some sort of feedback about where they think the agent might be going or what it might be doing next. And that like that messes up reinforcement learning. (laughs) 
when people are not not like giving the signal in the way that the model mathematically sort of assumes it's going to receive it and use it, that sort of mismatch really intrigued me and sort of uh, inspired me to think about in other contexts, like where this mismatch existed and how you could redesign the machine learning model to better um, sort of solve that impedance mismatch. There are lessons in there for parenting also. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, I was I was even thinking about how, you know, when you train a dog, you have to make sure that the feedback you're giving the dog knows what it's for. Exactly. Like all all You of can't the just come back like, like three hours later. Yes. <laughs> It's exactly right. And it has to be timely. And that's another thing. Like if a person gives feedback to, like if they thought about something the agent did a few steps ago, and then they're like, oh, wait, wait, that that wasn't good and gives negative feedback. The sort of temporal aspect to it is a problem as well. And actually, like in the dog training books, they tell you that same thing. They're like, okay, your signal needs to come really, really close to what the dog just did. Otherwise, it's totally useless and confusing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there is definitely the, an analogy uh, there. What was the, what was the title of this paper? Uh, reinforcement learning with human teachers, evidence of feedback and guidance with implications for learning performance. It is a 2006 paper, right when I started my PhD. <laughs> nice. And you mentioned there was another paper that you that you recommend to your students read most often. It's another paper by Guy Hoffman, the other researcher that I mentioned. It's a paper... Um, validating different ways of assessing team fluency in human-robot interaction. It's an incredibly important paper in the field because if you're gonna if you're gonna ask like, well, how well is a how well is a person and a robot at how how good are they at working together? Like you're gonna try to assess that via some measures, but then every researcher is sort of making up their own measures. Like, <laughs> like what does fluency mean here or effective teamwork mean here versus there in this task versus that task? One of the things that's really important for moving the field forward is to have common um, ways of sort of measuring key aspects of the collaboration, but then have those measures be validated. There's a, a very nice paper by Guy Hoffman, who is now faculty at, at, at Cornell on validated measures for human uh, machine or human robot team fluency. That's the, the the evaluating fluency paper. It is. Did you find it? Yes. I was yeah. actually already familiar with that one. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Co- awesome. So, reflections. Let's do reflections. So, I, I was thinking back to a thing that we kind of skipped over briefly, um, which is about being able to sort of open up some of these black boxes and that you can't do that with, with machine learning and AI. And there's an axiom of cybernetics, which is that you can uh, characterize the variety of a system as a black box without having to get inside it. And so that is what makes control of these systems possible because you have to be able to account for that variety to control the system. And so the thing that I'm now thinking about is there may be a sense in which AI or ML systems are categorically different from the sorts of systems we tried to control in the past because you you can't characterize the variety of the system anymore just by observing its inputs and outputs. Nice. Yeah. This this was a real blast. I I also studied artificial intelligence at MIT, but I I stopped up my bachelor's degree. So it's great to, to dip my toe in a little bit and to see that like what's happening now, artificial intelligence is, is not human intelligence, nor should it be. Um, the Turing test is a fabulous thought exercise, but not a goal to head to lead towards. And the the goals are actually making systems and, and human lives better, not just making a computer better. And so, like, that's a very, very different task. And that's, that's what I'm going to be thinking a lot about more. So thank you. That's awesome.
Yeah, so so something I'm thinking about from this conversation that I I hadn't I didn't quite put together in, in such a crisp way previously was that um, when, when we talk about needing to like sub-optimize parts of the system to make an optimized overall system, that that extends not just to the human machine uh, sort of team or partnership, but um, this is definitely woven into the book, but I've never actually ex- expressed it in this way that you helped sort of pull out through this discussion that um, that system is like is is really at this much larger societal level as well, and that the feedback loop goes much deeper back to the technology for you know what what we want on our roads needs to go back and and sort of shape not only the fundamental sort of AI question but how we shape the direction of the technology sort of more fundamentally. Now, now I'm thinking about what what sorts of things do we as I go about my day do we want to try to suboptimize like. <laughs> <laughs> in what in yeah, what way should we like aim for mediocrity? <laughs> yeah, my my favorite uh, Acoff saying is a system isn't the sum of its parts; it's the product of its interactions. Yes, yes, well said. Well, he said it. I just yeah. quote it. <laughs> Great quote. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're we're done. We did the thing, and you did great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Yeah.